Shabba and welcome to our 84th episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time reviewing the films that earn their gold statue or standard, if you will. I am one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the professional nerd herself, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you today? I professional nerded so hard over the weekend. And my professional nerddom has now been forever immortalized in a photo with the man who is a professional wizard. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And that is only only funny for people that know James outside of Buffy. So if you've if you you have to know the Dresden files for that to be funny. Otherwise everyone's like, but he's Spike from Buffy. I don't get it. He's not a wizard, he's a vampire. Young cultured swines. Read a book. Or in this case, you gotta listen to a book. You don't even have to read the book. You wanna listen to the book. I actually have to get into the Dresden Files myself because everybody keeps telling me it's such a great series. So I, uh, I definitely will. Have it to is. It's it. really good, but you want to listen to them. And this is one of those times where it's like, no, don't read the book. Mm. It's not nearly as fun as listening to James Marsters narrate the book and do all the voices. <laughs> so, Ooh. well, then I definitely know what my next uh, purchase on Audible will be when it comes to that because I, I love my audiobooks. So I guess the Dresden Files is next on the menu. And of course, on the other, the Ghostwood girl, Zan Sprouse. Hey, Zan, how's life treating you? I'm getting ready to watch somebody else professionally nerded up this weekend. We're getting ready to head to Austin for GalaxyCon. So work for Chris, shopping for me. Always excellent. <laughs> Very nice. Any, any, any people in particular that you're looking forward to seeing or any panels that you look forward to attending? Well, honestly, what I'm really looking forward to is my friend Rachel taking me to a women's tournament, my first tournament in Texas. Not me. um, She's got more than one friend named Rachel. Different Rachel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I I met somebody this weekend in um, Fort Wayne. And when I said, where are you from? She said, Austin. I'm like, I'll be in Austin next weekend. She's like, there's a women's tournament. I'll come get you. I'm like, hell yeah, let's do this thing. So I get to play in a tournament in Texas. I'm very excited. Oh, that's fantastic. Totally not so, uh, convention related at all, but I'm very excited. <laughs> well, hey, it's uh, definitely an excuse to, to go to the, visit the Lone Star State indeed. And uh, ladies, today we are, of course, reviewing The Artist, directed and written by Michel Hazanavichus. The score was provided by Ludovic Burs. And less but to point today's money, this movie cost $20 million to make and made $180 million at the box office. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May the 15th of 2011 and was released to the general public on October the 12th of 2011 and has a runtime of roughly one hour and 40 minutes. So, Zan, starting with you, what are your general thoughts on The Artist? I absolutely love this movie. It's this year is an interesting year for movies because we have a couple of movies that really remind us how special cinema really can be and really is and how it's always been that special and how even though some of our more forgotten techniques are still really incredible really incredible to watch and this movie is so lovely even though it is kind of a sad story that we've heard heard a million times before 
silent film star doesn't quite get on board with talkies then loses their money in the 1929 crash and then chaos ensues from there i mean we've heard this story a lot of times um you know even though it's a story we kind of know and it's a plot we sort of know i mean it's very you know it definitely has that oh hi one photo was taken of me in the newspaper and now i'm a movie star you know broadway melody singing in the rain i mean we've talked numerous times about how that's a trope that just isn't true kids that's not how it works <laughs> at least for sure not anymore but it reminds us that cinema has always been special even before it had sound that there was something special about those performances something special about those that type of direction and something special about needing to tell a story with as many as, as few words as possible um i am not 100 sure how to pronounce this director's last name i wasn't able to find some place where he said it <laughs> uh it looks like hazana vasias is what i'm yeah. assuming it is that, that's Hazana that's what i went by i i mean i went okay. by the hazana beach also hazana beaches i'm not sure yeah. that i think so. And so, you know, he even said that he did his best to tell the story as well as he could with his having few dialogue placards as he possibly could, you know, to, to re and, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I always thought was interesting in silent movies that if you can read lips, you can tell that there's so much more going on, you know, you'll see somebody talking for, you know, like a minute and then you'll hear you'll you'll see the the dialogue of what are you doing here like something really small <laughs> so it it really does remind us of of how how interesting that was and how special it was and this is only we only get two silent movies as best picture you know we have wings in this because we didn't have the award before wings and there are some really fantastic pieces of cinema that came before this you know you know one thing i'm thinking off the top of my head would be the general would probably be the one the one thing if you said if there's a if there's a silent movie you could give an oscar to what would it be i would probably say the general and then probably uh boy something sunrise is a good one sunrise is a good one um modern times modern times is fantastic uh birth of a nation can suck it Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um honestly so can greed a little bit greed i don't need to watch that for eight hours you know there there you know there's a reason why we give oscars for editing um but you know i maybe the flesh and the devil when it comes to you know sort of romantic movies i i that's one that i really love it's a it's a garbo and gilbert um or Battleship Potemkin. Potemkin, well. that's another one. Um, take your pick of Fairbanks movies, you know. So the, I, I love that we go back to this, and I love how much this movie homages not just silent film, but classic cinema. You know, you can't get a, you can't get away from the parallels between this and Singing in the Rain. Um, you can't get away from the parallels between this and Sunset Boulevard um can't get away from parallels from this in the thin man you know we've got <laughs> i think uh, uggy the dog is taking your place of asta 
in this one. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> you know, we have a we have a wonderful Jack Russell Terrier that really is holding everything all together. <laughs> and then we have little things like the breakfast scene where he and his wife aren't talking, but they are obviously feuding where she's drawing, you know, mustache and blacked out teeth and eyebrows on him. It's very Citizen Kane. Um, just the fact that the first time we see them sitting down to breakfast, that they're eating grapefruit, that's very public enemy. Um, the, you know, her whole concept is very, you know, Pepe, Pepe's whole character is very reminiscent of um, the crowd and a star is born specifically the Janet Gaynor star is born again. There, the, the Janet Gaynor scene with the suit that's recreated in this. Um, what movie was that though? That was a different movie. Oh, seventh heaven. That was Janet Gaynor in seventh heaven. Um, and even with the music, you know, at the very end when she takes the car and goes to look for him, I was watching this and I was like, that's vertigo music. That, that's vertigo music. And there's something in the credits that's credited to Bernard Herrmann. Um, but it doesn't have, it doesn't tell me where it's from. And I'm like, I knew it was freaking vertigo. So there are so, there are so many things and so many different types of direction. You know, when you see him in the mirror and then you see him with the water on the, the excuse me, the vodka on the table that just really remind us that silent movies aren't just, you know, the Laurel and Hardy reels they showed us in elementary school because they were public domain. And they're not just the, you know, the crappy public domain section of the library. There's a lot going on with this art form. And it is hard to, it's always been hard for me to understand why anyone wasn't on board for, for talkies people listen to radio people went to plays they're totally fine with hearing actors talk i don't know why they didn't think they'd want to see them and hear them talk on film i don't know but you know even even charlie chaplin made silent films way longer because he had created a character that was silent that you know the little tramp is a silent he doesn't if you know chaplin said if he talks he dies i mean there is no making that character into a talking character so there is this mentality that what you've done is created something for a visual rather than an, an audio and being able to step away from that and see how you can how you can evolve rather than fighting you know fighting the tidal wave that is coming it is going to happen and i think this you know anytime we hear these stories it reminds us that there's a reason why we stopped seeing these incredibly famous, incredibly influential silent stars. And it's not just because they couldn't talk anymore. It's because they died. You know, so, I mean, how many times have we heard died drunk and penniless sometime in the thirties? And, you know, it, it, it's because this is a, a very, very different art form. We talked about this with Sun Sunset Boulevard. It's an extremely different art form acting with, just your face and so i love that this movie is here i love that this movie exists and i love the story and i love i love that even though we've seen this before we've never seen it like this you know we, we've seen all the elements but we've never seen them brought together like this and this movie if i had never seen these people before 
you know, if there'd never been James Cromwell or John Goodman or, and I don't know, I don't know who they got for makeup to make Malcolm McDowell look as much like W.C. Fields as he did. <laughs> it's like if W.C. Fields and Frank Morgan had a child, it would have been Malcolm McDowell in this movie. <laughs> the only thing that would have clued me into the fact that this was a modern movie was the film stock. You know, this was shot in color and then re and then the color was removed and it's just you know even the 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 fading in the corners and everything i mean it it really tries it's just too good it's just too good to look but you know the costumes the set design the hair the makeup everyone was so meticulous in making this look exactly like it would have been in 1927 is just is just so beautiful and such a joy to watch i absolutely love this movie Fabulous stuff. And it's interesting you mentioned that point of it looking, you know, should we say you could tell it was kind of modern, even though it had that, that throwback feel. I got the same feeling re-watching recently uh, the MCU's A Werewolf by Night, which is also kind of a throwback to old school black and white horror. And you can tell it was made today, but like but it does capture that feel of what an old school black and white horror movie would look like. So I think uh, I think this can be felt also in this movie, too. And Rachel, what did you make of our second silent film that we get to review? Yeah, I was somewhat unsure going in into this. Um, yeah, because for me, the, the silent films have been hit or miss. Um, but at least, you know, I had some better idea of what to expect, you know, like not every single thing that is quote unquote said on screen gets a card, you know, um, although, you know, all you gotta do is watch sometimes people's like body language and their facial expressions is like, you know, exactly what's going on with that. having to know a word that they said, um, you know, like when, when George is hamming it up, you know, for the crowd and his his co-star is off to the side and she's just pissed. Yeah, you know, you're gonna just tell. <laughs> you know? Um uh so you know, I at least knew that going into it, but as I watch this movie, I you know, you know, you know, anybody listens to our podcast. Uh, knows that Singing in the Rain, one of my absolute favorite films of all time. And for this to touch upon essentially the same subject, but in a more serious tone, Singing in the Rain takes it and it gets, you know, it gets a little serious, but not really. Um, you know, it, it plays more on the, oh, ha ha, look, Lena, her voice, it's awful. Oh, isn't that, isn't that funny? But look, we found this, you know, fresh young face star, um, you know, and Don, he's falling in love with her. Great. Everybody lives happily ever after, except for Lena, but whatever, she's a bitch. Um, but this is more honest of what it was like when this transition happened in Hollywood, there were extremely famous silent film stars that could not make the transition to talkies for one reason or another um you know the the acting is different because you're you're not relying solely on your facial expressions and body language you know you actually have to say the words and it has to match you know um 
in some cases, their voices just did not sound good, you know, for one reason or another. Um, you know, some had accents and some people just, they, you know, it was kind of like Lena Lamont. They just sounded awful. Uh, so, um, yeah, so some very, very big stars lost their line of work in the transition to, um, you know, to, to talkies, uh, some studios suffered because they could not make the transition, uh, you know, either they couldn't afford the technology, you know, to, uh, to change all of their tech and upgrade all of their tech or, you know, they couldn't just quite get it working. Um, so the ones that could find stars who could translate kind of literally into sound and actually get the, you know, the technology working, then, you know, you're printing money. <laughs> at least at first um but um it also it op also opened up a whole new way uh, a whole new app you know whole new avenues of storytelling you know you could do proper song and dance musicals um which you know as we've seen with you know kind of that golden age of hollywood musicals were huge and they didn't necessarily have to have a plot yeah, all I gotta do is look at all the Broadway melodies <laughs> and and their ilk. Um, you know, Ziegfeld made a fortune to a point. Uh, you know, just girls in flashy costumes didn't need to have plot. It just looked good and it sounded good. So, um, so to see someone like George struggle so much. And really, I mean, we'll talk about George. Yeah, to see him struggle so much and how real it gets um, is, it was just, I, I found, even without their, you know, hardly any sound, um, other than the score. Um, it, I just found the whole thing compelling. And I just like, I was kind of glued to my screen. Cause these, these characters, they just, they jumped off the screen in such a, such a compelling way. And I was just so captivated by their uh, chemistry with each other. And, you know, this, kind of roller coaster ride that this you know this star um is going on at the same time you know peppy is got you know rising to the top um and i just yeah but it's, by the time i got to the end of it i was like i was like because you know i didn't have really a whole lot of you know, expectations going, going into it. But the time it got to the end, I was like, this was actually really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it ended up being way better than I think I thought it ever could be if I thought to think of it going into it. But I just kind of went into it almost as a blank slate 
and just kind of let let it happen to me. But I'll, you know, <laughs> I was like, this is actually really good. And it's a really good story. And it's it's a short film compared, I mean, compared to almost everything else we have done. This is a short film. It's only an hour and 40 minutes long. That is like nothing compared to it to sell to tell such a wonderful story in such a short amount of time. You know, that that says a lot. It, it certainly does. So I think it definitely, you know, tells you um, I think how good Hazanavichus is when it came to balancing the story and being able to tell you so much in such a brief space of time. And I will say almost to quote, quote George Strait, this movie did leave me with a smile. It certainly did, because this is this is only our second silent film since we reviewed Wings way back on our debut episode of this podcast. And I will say, speaking of smiles, one definitely crossed my lips when I saw that our story does begin in 1927 at the height of the silent movie era. And like other films we have seen in particular, like you guys mentioned, Singing in the Rain on Patreon, this film very much does tackle that transition from silent films to talkies and the impact that it had on the career of actors, some of course refusing to embrace the change and being left behind, like Georges Valentin, while others being able to make the transition and enjoy great success from it, like Pepe Miller. And I, I definitely agree also with Zan. I did find it to be a love letter and homage to film in general, but also to a certain style of film. And possibly one might say it is both a celebration of that style and also somewhat melancholic remembrance of films that just aren't made like this anymore. Between the musical cues and some very evident visual cues, I think Hazanavishus tells an intimate story, yet one with a happy ending at the same time. Some might call it a bit of a novelty, if you will, but I very much did enjoy it. Though it did seem to get a tad slow towards the end before the pace picked up again, it was great. And also looking at the title, you could interpret it in many ways. It could either be talking about George's journey and or Pepe's journey, or the artist could be simply cinema itself or the celebration of the actor. It's, it's, I love that, that just the title itself could be seen in so many ways and can, can be labeled in so many ways. And I, as I mentioned, this is a homage to old-timey cinema. Well, it could be, you know, uh, pointed at the figure of the actor who is an artist of his or her craft and the ability to adapt to the changing times. So, yeah, I love the film and also I enjoyed the ambiguity of the title as well. So, well done, Hazanovichus. So let's start off with uh, one of our main characters on the board here, the fictional hero of silent film. We have Mr. Jean Dujardin, who's been in quite a few Nes um, Nespresso commercials over here in Italy, as George Valentin. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of George? He, if it wasn't for the fact that, like, the, the, even with them making the the color black and white and doing like like the 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 cards with the words and the the soundtrack and everything um yeah this look this film looks modern made you know it doesn't look like it was made a century ago um or thereabouts but george has that old hollywood star look to him like he's got that million watt smile he's obviously very charming very charismatic you know uh has a bit of a uh you know uh you know 
dashing romantic feel to him. You know, there's several times where I'm like, yeah, he could be Gene Kelly easily <laughs> in this. But, but, you know, he's also, um, you know, he's also, a, you know, an action hero. So, uh, you know, he's got a very, you know, Douglas Fairbanks-esque feel about him. They, you know, they even at one point take Douglas Fairbanks out of a film and put him into it. <laughs> and I'd be like... He was the one that was in that movie. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he very much has the look um, that you would expect from someone that era. Um, and, you know, obviously he's he's very successful. You know, he's got a very, you know, big house. You know, he's, his wife, anytime he pisses her off, he's just able to send his chauffeur to the jewelry store <laughs> to, to buy her present. Um, you know he he's got a chauffeur. You know he doesn't drive himself anywhere. He gets chauffeured around. Um, you know he seems to have it all, and then this new technology comes along, and really it's his own fault. Kind of what happens to him because it's not like. I mean, because he's so convinced that talkies are a fad, and even if they're not, no one wants to hear him talk. And it's not like Zimmer is all like, yeah, we don't think anybody wants to hear you talk either. And he takes off. You know, he takes, you know, George takes off because he's convinced that he can keep doing what he's doing in perpetuity. And is you know his his golden life is going to continue the way it is, and these you know bumps and stuff that come all you know happen to him are really the outcome of his own ego, and you know he has to hit rock bottom for him to realize that uh, he's he needs to get out of his own way and let the people around him hold his hand and you know lead him into this next phase of his life um you know which is being in sound <laughs> film um and i mean Obviously, <laughs> you know, if, if this hadn't happened, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have a plot. But there is part of me that's a like, okay, so what? He's got a French 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 accent. It's not like people don't know that because we see him after this premiere outside talking to the media, talking to reporters with microphones. There's a bunch of women there at you know screaming for his autograph. They can hear him talk, they know what he sounds like. So it's not like, not like with Lena, where they keep her from talking so that nobody knows that she sounds like she's, you know, sucked up an entire can of helium. Um, and the type of movies that he was doing, you know, these action kind of, you know, early, you know, precursor to like James Bond type film that he was doing. 
honestly, I think he could have kept doing that even with sound because he could have been this dashing, you know, European, you know, spy action man. And that probably would have translated even with his accent, you know, as long as they could still understand, you know, as long as he was still under understandable. I mean, we've got a French actor in an American in Paris and he holds his own against Gene Kelly. So, you know, it's not entirely unheard of to have someone who's not an American be a halfway decent actor. Um, you know, the French accent, yes, it can, it can be very thick and sometimes hard to understand as someone who's trying to teach themselves French. Uh <laughs> I do struggle sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I honestly think that, you know, if he had been willing, instead of immediately putting his foot down at the idea of talking pictures, you know, to, to quote Sing in the Rain, talking pictures, talking pictures. Um, and, you know, Zimmerman was all like, well, you know, let's do a screen test. Let's see how you do, you know, with the, the equipment and see how you sound and all that. Then, you know, they could have, you know, depending on how maybe that turned out, then, you know, maybe there's some conflict. Turns out maybe he doesn't translate too well to talking. I don't know. But in my mind, him putting his foot down and thinking that he could just, you know, continue as is was just a whole bunch of ego talking you know he was believing he's believing his own hype um and um it comes around to bite him in the ass you know he loses his wife which even before i think the talking picture thing came into the picture their relationship was not like the most deep loving relationship so his wife leaving him i i mean that probably was going to happen anyway <laughs> she just did not seem happy uh but the fact that she told him you know essentially she left him a letter saying you know get out by the way go see that new talking pictures one <laughs> like oh by the way i didn't even bother to go see your new movie i went and saw the other one uh <laughs> was just you know the extra twisted the knife there um you know his film to be a flop you know even the biggest stars can have flops um but you know but because he is he's trying to to duplicate something that you can only duplicate so many times before the audience is just like eh I've seen this before you know i want something new i want something different and talking pictures was some obviously something very different i mean now we take that for granted and then we get something like this that reminds us of a of a time gone by and the academy loves anything that talks about hollywood anyway uh they love to praise themselves <laughs> so <laughs> um but to you know at, at the at the end of it all you know him almost dying in the fire which was again his fault to begin with 
Uh, not that I, I think in you know the early 30s that they knew that that uh, the the type of materials that that film was made out of them was extremely flammable. Uh, <laughs> very very flammable. Um, and you know to have to auction off all of his all of his belongings. Um, which I mean, some celebrities do that just because they ha- end up with too much shit. You know, there's a lot of celebrities that are like, "I just got too much stuff. I'm gonna auction it off." Sometimes they, and you know, sometimes they keep the the money, and the, uh, oftentimes it goes to you know to a, a good cause. Um, you know, and then to reach the 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 point where he is ready to kill himself is just it's heartbreaking even though at the same time you know that's part of my part of me that's like dude you brought this on yourself um you know it's it's still heartbreaking for for to see someone get to that point because like zan said there actually were stars that that they got left behind during this transition and that's just kind of what they happened they just kind of flittered off until they died you know into, into nothingness um you know whether they act actively just like killed themselves or you know they drunk themselves to death um because they had nothing um but it's the support from the people around him who don't care that he is you know george valentin former film star you know clifton doesn't care clifton knows that he was a boss who's been really good to him for the time that he's worked for him and has provided him a place to live and a steady job which is why you know we'll talk about clifton why he doesn't bother to say anything when he doesn't get paid for a year because he's still got a roof over his head that's no place to live they got food you know they're getting by um or that you know um that Peppy, you know, maybe the potential for romance there, but yeah, you know, maybe not. But she, you know, she does care for him. She sees him as a as a friend, you know. And then, you know, he's got his dog, who is, you know, extremely loyal to him. Yeah. You know? So it's having these people around him supporting him, regardless of his celebrity status is ultimately what helps him get back on his feet again and yeah the fact that he does get back into film is just kind of an added bonus you know he once he found his footing maybe he could have gone on into directing or producing or something um yeah but the fact that he gets to go back to doing you know what he loves being in front of the camera it's just you know kind of the icing on the on the happy ending <laughs> the cherry on the happy ending sunday um as it is um but i just i just i just found him so so charming that there was just several times where he you know he would be smiling at someone or he'd smiling and it'd be in the general direction of the camera yeah, you know, so it almost looks like he, you know, he's smiling at those of us watching the film, and it's like just, yeah, you know, like oh, dude, 
there's a reason you were a star. He very much has that infectious smile, and that is very much uh, part of also Jean Dujardin's charm as well. I mean, he loves to flash that smile because he know it, knows it works. And uh, Zan, what did you make of George? Yeah, he he is Douglas Fairbanks, Rudolph Valentino, and John Gilbert all rolled into one guy. He's just wonderfully charming. And, you know, un, unlike Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain, he's a little more talented, I think. I think he's a little bit better of an actor and action actor than than Don is, you know, when you look at the, the before the dueling cavalier becomes the dancing cavalier he's kind of kind of goofy um but no he can kind of do everything you know he 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 is very douglas fairbanks with the swashbuckling and doing you know and you know a little bit of errol flynn thrown in for good measure doing all of the things that he can do but also being this you know dashing romantic lead like a valentino or a gilbert or somebody like that and he is very ego but not necessarily at the expense of others. Not in a Lena sort of a way. Not in a Lena Lamont kind of a way. Because, you know, as we see at the beginning, where everybody's trying to get the autograph, she drops her autograph book and is trying to get it. And the fact that she had almost, she sort of like broke through the police line to get that could have had her thrown in jail. But even then, he. You know, he was very gracious of taking the photo with her and letting her, you know, and, you know, didn't seem to have an issue with her, like, kissing him on the cheek, even though it did cause some trouble in his already troubled marriage. Um, and uh, once again, shout out to Penelope and Miller. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the, she's been in so many things and it's it's like she's almost been, you know, a, a super famous starlet, but it's just, it, you know, it, it's not going to happen if it's just the shadow, you know, <laughs> so um but and you know he is he does have these people around him that care about him because i think he is a kind-hearted person i think he is a decent human being i don't think someone like this could have a dog like that be loyal if he was a bad person you know he's obviously good to that dog and i love that line when the dog goes and finds the police officer um and he saves him from the fire um was that the police officer that was patrick from uh, spongebob one of the police officers in this is patrick from spongebob i just want everybody to know that um he says he owes every he owes his life to that dog and it's like he kind of does because you know we love nick and nora but do we do we love nick and nora as much as we love nick and nora and asta i don't think so <laughs> we, we all love that dog and there's a reason why at the beginning when we have our um why is the dog taking second billing to me moment with the with the actress again whose name i can't recall but she is in galaxy quest um it's like yeah people are here for this dog you know we all know that this dog is you know this dog is our favorite character in this movie all of us we, lo we love this dog <laughs> um but i don't i don't think a bad person would have this dog as loyal if, if he weren't he wouldn't do things like stick up for her to his producer you know where are you going we have a we have a scene to shoot and um they do have that moment with each other 
you know, you know, on on screen with the dancing and in his dressing room where he catches her, which is a, an amazing scene. The way she does that, the way it looks like, you know, it really looks like somebody else is there in that jacket with her. It's very impressive how she was able to get that. They how, how she did such good choreography with that. Um, and she's written thank you on his mirror, and they have these these little stolen moments, and you know, he gives her the beauty spot, you know, the beauty spot that becomes her breakthrough mega fame role that he he said you need something that the other girls don't have boop and that's where beauty spot comes from and he's i think there's ego there but i also think there is fear there because he is a guy who can do anything because it's all visual you know he can be this james bond kind of guy he can be the charming smile romantic lead and he can be the swashbuckler that stabs you right in the gut he can do all of that because you know he's not memorizing lines he's not you know he doesn't have to change his voice he doesn't need a voice so i think i think a lot of it is a lot of it is ego you know people are come to see me it'll be a great movie and he makes this movie that like rachel said is extremely derivative of everything we've seen before you know we you know that you know the, the movie he was making so many elements we've seen so many different times it was really not anything that was going to be all that special especially if it opens the same weekend as a talkie that probably has some singing and something people actually it's something brand new you know it's like it i'm trying to think of i'm trying to think of a good analogy for 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 today but it, it, it's you know if something if something brand new and different and interesting is going to come out the same weekend as like i don't even know like a, like another retelling of something it's like which one are people going to go to we all know that people are going to go see the new the the fresh new thing and you know he had no way of knowing that he had no way of realizing that was going to happen when he financed this movie out of his own checkbook his own personal checkbook um he had no idea that the stock market was going to crash so he's like well uh we're broke unless this movie does well which we know it's not going to um and even his wife is saying why won't you talk like why won't you do this this is this is where this is going why won't you do it and i think a lot of i think a lot of it was was ego but i think a lot of it was fear as well i think he knew that what he did was he was good at what he did but what he did wasn't talking and there's something so garbo about him at the end of this movie where he taught where he talks you hear him say with pleasure with this you know sexy french accent that people of the 30s would have melted for absolutely melted for um same thing with garbo she had this beautiful low voice this this it, you know this exotic nordic accent that she had and uh you know you hear you hear them talk you're like you're gonna be fine <laughs> you're gonna be totally fine <laughs> and that's the thing because now we get into the 1930s and you know who's one of our biggest stars in the 1930s fred astaire so you know you're gonna have you know that you know their scene and their movie together reminded me very much of a fred astaire scene very it was very swing times you know very and even with some of the camera work very busby berkeley-esque um and um interestingly enough really long dance sequences in this um 
that that's an interesting way to watch a dancing a movie with dancing is to see how long they actually dance before they cut to a different angle and this one was long this this was very fred astaire and you know fred astaire had a reputation for making his partner's feet bleed because he had the the sequences go on so long so there's there's so much to him that i think is so sweet and so charming and so i stick to it like through everything he was just there you know okay well i sell off my stuff and here's my apartment and i i love that he's in this small apartment with his butler slash driver still making lunch for him like where's that guy like where's his quarters like does he sleep on the chair like what's going on with this um and you know and still with the dog you know he never gets rid of the dog never blames the dog nothing like that even when he gets divorced it's like yeah well i get it um he's you know he's you know it's take your souvenirs and get out so you're wondering you know whose money was in that house you know was it her house um and again that whole that whole i'm marrying you for your status thing um was very you know buster keaton and you know uh natalie talmage and but even but even after that he's like he's like doing whatever he can to still be who he is and you know even when we have that scene where you have the interview um where she's being interviewed and she's like oh they don't want to see people mugging and it's make way for the young and and he just gets up and leaves he says i've made way for you like you know he he gets it and he's basically saying you didn't have to say that, but I get it. And even she realizes that what she's saying is is very flippant and very, you know, I think in that moment, I think she has more ego than he does in his entire, in his entire display that we see with him. That I think he's, I think he's believing his own press more than he believes he can do anything, which is why he turns to alcoholism, which is why he tries to set the apartment on fire. Which, by the way, <laughs> if that had been actual nitrate film stock, that would have gone off before the match even fell to the ground. <laughs> that would have been a blazing fire, like way, way earlier than that. Um, nitrate film stock has been known to catch fire if the light bulb's too bright in the projector. <laughs> so it's it's extremely flammable and very dangerous. Go watch Cinema Parody. So more on that later. Um, and when he does, when he does, you know, try to shoot himself and, you know, I feel like the, the whole time I'm like, but your dog is right there. <laughs> like you can't do this to the dog. Like how, how are you? Somebody's going to need to take care of the dog. And, you know, all through, I, he just, he's, he really doesn't believe in himself. Like he, do, you know, so many people have told him, nobody's going to want to listen to you that he doesn't particularly he doesn't believe anything to the contrary which is which is sad because you know if he can dance and even remotely sing he's going to be fine in the 1930s it's it's not it's not an issue i mean that's of course hindsight being 2020 but um and i feel like as much as he helps peppy he doesn't help her that much he just keeps her from getting fired that one time and gives her a beauty spot and then the rest of it is kind of all her 
because you know they make they're, they're going to do this one picture together that they that that they do and then she's up and he's down you know she's she's coming up and he's coming down at the same time so it's not like he can get her parts or anything like that she's doing the rest of it on her own he just believed in her you know he just made sure she didn't get fired and as much as i love about her that she never forgot that it's not like he had that kind of pull to make her super famous you know he barely was able to make his wife believe that they weren't having an affair like that was the first time he was in the papers with a mystery girl i mean come on um but he's he's so indicative of the stars of the time which was very what have you done for me lately you're only as good as your last as your last picture doesn't matter what you did you know three years ago five years ago if your last picture was a dud immediately the invitation stop immediately the offer stop and he's a perfect example of that where <clears throat> he was the biggest thing until sound hit and then once sound hit he tried to stay in his realm of comfort and that it's like oh we've done that before what do you got for me now what's next what else is on kind of thing and another thing i find really cool about this movie is that they never talk about actual hollywood you know you see the hollywood land sign but nobody ever talks about what they're doing over at paramount nobody ever talks about um other stars or anything like that it's almost like this this hollywood exists in its own bubble like in its own universe um and so it's not like there's any comparison to him and someone else or her and someone else or you don't see him at the auction and then you know next to next up on the auction block valentino's personal items you know you, they don't have anything like that i thought that was very very interesting that this this exists all on its own without almost assuming that that original hollywood doesn't exist in this realm and i thought that was really fascinating and with because of that he sort of has to carry all of the trials and tribulations of the silent film era with him with you know like how many bad things can happen to this guy you know his wife leaves him his movie is a flop that he paid first of all talkies happen he's obsolete he tries to make another movie with his own money it flops his wife leaves the stock market crash it's like everything that happened in like those two years of talkies coming out in the 30s starting all happens to this character and he weathers it as best as he can but eventually he just can't he cannot handle it anymore until someone else reminds him that there is something valid about him and that's part of why i also think that most of what he was going through it, with his resistance was fear because i think if he had the ego he would have been doing more things like trying to direct more things or partnering with jimmy durani or something like another stupid thing that actually happened to somebody back in the day um that i just i don't think it's this character really needed somebody else to believe in him for him to do for him to do what he did and as much as he says you know i'm an artist you know and and an artist 
needs to be viewed. You know, somebody needs to, you know, an artist needs an audience. And even if that audience for him was just peppy, he needed that. He needed something. And, you know, unfortunately, Ugly the Dog wasn't good enough, which he should have been. Ugly the Dog's amazing. I love Ugly the Dog myself. And it's interesting you mentioned the whole thing of, uh, I guess, Hollywood's infatuation with French actors, Zan, because, of course, yeah, had George been less reluctant and, you know, granted hindsight being what it was, of course, then you would have had a few years later Maurice Chevalier showing up and Charles Boyer showing up and literally taking Hollywood by storm. I cannot rec- I cannot count how many films that really did so well were starring the likes of Chevalier and Boyer. So it's like, yeah, he would have he would have been fine. And I will you know, start by looking at his name, which is not only very classic sounding, but especially his last name made me wonder like you you guys mentioned where it could have been a callback to a silent film star Rodolfo Valentino who in similar fashion to George was considered a sex symbol at the height of his career the ladies fawn over him and the men want to be him and I suppose while Valentino was not able to fully make the transition to talkies due to his untimely death George suffers the death of his career by refusing to make the change and shrugging off the emergence of the talkie as merely a novelty, as Rachel mentioned. I think he very much does exude that charisma and that charm of a silent film star, and interestingly, fully embraces the traits of literally being silent. Between his wife constantly asking why he won't talk to her, the fact that his best friend is Uggy the dog, who is incapable of human speech, and all these possibly not-so-subtle cues help us very much understand the character of George and what Hazanavichus is trying to say with him. Interestingly, though he does seem incredibly dismissive of the rise of the talkies, that very cleverly shown nightmare he has, where everything makes a sound except for him, which was brilliantly done, shows that by, I think, refusing to make that transition, he is doomed to remain trapped in this silent bubble while the world moves along in its cacophony of sound. So it almost could be like reluctance to change. And I mentioned, you know, Valentino, as we do see, is quite the womanizer, and we can tell from his wife that Pepe may not be the first young hopeful starlet whom George may have may have attempted to seduce. Though with Pepe, I appreciated it because it did turn out to be different. As in this case, he does end up assuming more of a mentor-mentee relationship in allowing her to get her big break, which did remind me of the relationship, yeah, between Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden in Singing in the Rain. And I do think that in the end, before he gets ultimately rescued by Pepe, who gives him the second chance, George is a victim of his own pride, clinging to a bygone era and thinking he knows best while the world around him is changing and his reluctancy to change, I think causing him to stand on the brick, uh, brink of obsolescence and becoming that actor my great-grandfather enjoyed. Heck, I enjoy him too. And I did like that it was ultimately his one-time student, Pepe, who ultimately rehabilitates him and brings him into the present. So I think there is that kind of theme going on of reluctance to change, the um, desire to change or move with the times, which is a theme that we have seen in quite a few films uh, over the years. So uh, speaking of our young starlet, whose visage graces the cover of every other pop culture magazine, we have uh, the delightful Berenice Bejot as Epi Miller. So Zan, starting with you, what did you make of Epi? Again, I think Pepe is sort of comedic in the sense that films like this give us the impression that all you have to do is show up 
and be cute somewhere and then oh look you're you're an extra now and oh look you have a feature part and oh look you know you keep you know i I loved that scene where she keeps rising in the ranks of the credits and then you know and then oh look you're 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 in a dancing scene starring opposite the most famous star of the day and that's not how it works (laughs) so that's that's kind of adorable and i i can't and again i think a lot of a lot of this story reminds us of how dangerous it is to believe the hype around you because there's nothing wrong with Peppy. I mean, she's perfectly fine. You know, she's very, um, she has those gorgeous eyes. So she's very striking looking that big smile. And then of course she has the beauty spot. Um, so she stands out from everybody else and I don't know who designed her clothes, but I want some. And but at the same time, Peppy goes from being so infatuated with George and then so seemingly in love with him. Just the way we have the scene with her in, the, in, in his tuxedo, um, which watching him pawn that later was very difficult. That was that was that was very sad um, that, you know, almost to in love with him to being and also so incredibly grateful for making sure she you know that that um zimmer didn't kick her out just because because zimmer's mad at her basically because her little kiss got them on the front page and the movie on the fifth page so you know he's not looking for her to steal anyone's thunder let alone especially you know his his movie um so but you've got to go you've got to go with the star you have that your audience wants and at the moment george is what the audience wanted so she's so incredibly appreciative to him of him and then you know we sort of see her meteoric rise in parallel to his his resounding downfall like i said i mean just everything that could have happened and that did happen to silent film stars happened to him you know the only thing we didn't see was tax evasion um because that was a that was a big deal when income tax came in a lot of the silent film stars are like uh income what now (laughs) and because that was new at the turn of the century and part of me wonders if the amount of money film stars were making didn't contribute to the fact that the united states implemented an income tax in the first place so yeah take out tax evasion but you have you know divorce alcoholism um stock market crap you know all of that you know the the only other thing too is that nobody took took his kids away essentially looking at you natalie talmage um but uh you know she seems to have this idyllic rise to fame these you know she doesn't have a sex scandal and she doesn't have any she doesn't have any box office bombs in the middle of this or anything like that it's just this it's this perfect ride and you know we never see her you know we sort of we sort of see her in the chorus line as the dancing girls which again very singing in the rain you know even the costume is very similar to uh all i do is dream of you bit at the party um we don't see her sort of as the starving artists trying to do those trying to do those gigs you know that was at a party this was at least in a movie you know and every single next movie is a step up and so to have her have that moment of 
oh, well, people just want to hear me and not see people mugging it, you know, and it's like, do you know who you're talking about when you say something like that? Like, do you even realize the the impact of what you're saying when you talk about um, silent film stars who, you know, at this point, you know, we don't have, you know, there's there's no VHS. There's not even television to rerun these movies yet. So once these movies stopped showing in the theaters, they were gone. They might as well have just not existed. They could have been a fever dream for all we know. Um, and some of these people are still trying to work in film, either as directors or producers or even acting some of them. And it's like, do you think you're never going to act with these people or work with these people? Like, why would you say that? <laughs> and especially considering what she knew George was going through, because, you know, the, you know, one of the few people that did go see his movie on opening night was her. You know, when 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 his movie opened opposite Beauty Spot, she went to go see his movie. And she saw that she was one of like 14 people in that theater. She knew what was happening. She knew what was going to what was going on. And she knew that he was just, you know, just gone. You know, he had you know, she came, you know, she came to the house and said, you know, I'll talk to you later and so she knew she was the one that bought all of his stuff back at auction. You know, we we saw that we saw that someone bought the stuff. And then we find out that it's her. And then we have that scene where he's unwrapping everything and seeing that all of his stuff is in her house, just in a room in her house. Um, you know, even when she's doing what she can for him, she's still saying stuff like that. So it's definitely buying into your own hype can really turn you into a seemingly nasty person very quickly but you know it's it's almost like she had a publicist that told her what to say because all of her actions were completely opposite to that you know once she finds out what happens you know she's you know and this is this is risky at the time too because she's had a hit picture but again what have you done for me lately is hollywood and so for her to leave in the middle of filming to go see him you know she looks down at the director's newspaper and sees that that george is, has been in a fire goes and finds him talks to the nurse and says hey what what if uh can he come the doctor says he's 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 out of danger he just needs rest like well can he rest at my house well yeah of course he can and so you know they have this this moment until he he realizes the extent of how she has been what he feels carrying him and realizes that you know all the money he got from the auction most of that was her buying those pieces and you know his <laughs> his driver slash valet slash whatever james cromwell is <laughs> whatever he needed him to be works for her now and you know just everything he ever had she has now and he doesn't seem to be one he doesn't want to be just one more thing she has or he doesn't want to keep owing her and so you know that's when he gets up and leaves and when she figures it out and she runs after him she and even she says why won't you just let me help you and because you know for him it's not about needing this kind of help. 
you know, the one thing he does accept from her, I mean, aside from convalescence and a nice bed for convalescence, the one thing he does accept from her is a script. You know, that's the kind of help that he wants. And, you know, they hadn't seen each other for a long time. You know, they had this, are they or aren't they moment. And then, you know, she gets huge and he gets small and we don't have the same opportunities for them to be together with, you know, stolen glances and um, uh, stolen dances, frankly, (laughs) you know, I love that scene where they're dancing and they can't get through it because he's just enjoying, they're just enjoying dancing with each other too much. And then, you know, when he comes to with the fire and realizes what he's done. And again, like I said, there's, there's not even television to rerun these movies. Once these movies are gone, they're gone. And, you know, if, if he has, especially with that last movie he made, if he's been financing these himself and he has originals, these movies are just gone. I mean, they're, they're, they're just done. And he grabs one film can, he holds onto it so tight. That's why he has to have his hands bandaged because the heat from that film can is what burned his hands. And the doctor even said we had to pry it out of him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let us take it away from him to, to treat him. And when she opens it up and sees that it is the real of them dancing again, that is very cinema paradiso to me. Where at the very, you know, when, when, you know, Toto comes back home and, you know, Alfredo's left him a can of film and all that's in it is the kissing that Alfredo had to, had to edit out. I just, the first time I saw that movie, I started crying. I'm like, it's the kissing. kissing. I was so excited. And I, and I knew that it was going to be something with her when, when they opened it up and I thought, you know, what, you know, what is it? And I thought it's got to be that dance scene. It has to be that dancing scene. And, you know, she's, and she's like, okay, yeah, yeah, we're still on the same page here. I got to find him. I got to find this guy. <laughs> and even when, even when she runs after, and I, and I do, that's such a silent movie trope with the bang, but it's not the gun. It's her car. I thought that was adorable because she can't drive. She runs the car into a tree. Um, And, you know, even then he's like, people don't want to listen to, people don't want to hear me. This is not what they want. And she's like. I think I have an idea of what we can do. And then we have this wonderful dance scene with the two of them. So I think she is a great example of how you can be a pure and good person. As long as you don't buy into your own, your own press, because I think if she had gone on with that flippant and egotistical, Oh, well, people just want to hear me. And they, you know, you know, make way for the young, you know, if she had gone on with that, I think it would have been, we as an audience would have wanted to see her downfall as well. I, I think so too. And thank you so much for mentioning Cinema Paradiso, Zan, because now I have the Morricone score playing in my head. And I that's one of my all-time favorite That is my favorite Morricone score for sure. That's my favorite yeah. one. It is just, uh, you know, so iconic. So I'm so glad. I'm, I think I'm, I'm actually going to go and listen to it uh, once we're done here because it's such a beautiful, beautiful score. So, uh, and uh, Rachel, what did you make of Peppy? She is just so very much that, you know, fresh into Hollywood. I'm going to be a star. Uh, I'm looking for my big break. Uh, 
type uh feel about her she's got a lot of confidence um and um she she's she's just ready to take tinseltown by storm <laughs> um and you know the fact that she has this this kind of chance encounter with you know the 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 hottest star in town at the time i mean it does help her to a point but it also is a hindrance because i mean she shows up for like you know the kind of that open call and nobody seems to notice or care that she's the gal who's on the front page of the newspaper yet she's able to show off you know some dance moves and has the right look to get pulled in for this this number and uh, it's and then it almost comes to bite her in the butt because it's Zimmer that recognizes her and thinks that maybe she's like stalking George or something or and, and you know He's all like, you know, get out of here and you know, get off this lot. Yeah, again, you did not need the cards to know what you know, was coming out of John Goodman's mouth. <laughs> it was not, it was not nice. The, the thing is, she got in there on her own merit, and it's only the fact that she and George had already sort of built up, you know, kind of this, you know, repartee. And he sees something in her that she's able to stay. And that's what... But even then, it's her own talent that keeps her going. Um, but he just, you know, she can thank him because he made sure she didn't get kicked out on her first day <laughs> for no fault of her own. Um, what I find interesting... Is, I know they needed some sort of gimmick. And George is like, you know, if you're going to be a star or you want to stand out, you have to have something the rest of them don't. And he puts that beauty mark on her, which the number of times that like she bursts into tears in this film and the and does not like accidentally smudge the, <laughs> the beauty mark. Um, good for her, whatever brand the of pencil that was. Um I'm lucky if I can get through half a day without my eyeshadow making me look like the Winter Soldier by, you know, mid-afternoon. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know if it's just because the, the, you know, because they're, it's not, you know, kind of like Sam was saying, where they don't really talk about Hollywood and it's kind of this movie's version of Hollywood. But I would think that she kind of stands out anyway because she's not traditionally beautiful. When you think about, you know, starlets of the same era, you know, she kind of she has this these big expressive eyes, this very, you know, not your stereotypical baby like cherub or heart shaped face. Um, you know, she's got this this almost like julia roberts you know mouth and grin about her you know it's very large a lot of teeth um you know the dark hair you know she looks like maybe 
she's got some I don't know what but she does she does not look like she is just straight up American uh she's got something in in her bloodline that just makes her look just a little exotic for I know that's a terrible term um but we're talking about the 30s here so when somebody yeah that would have been the word they used yeah Yeah, she just she does not look like your stereotypical all-american beauty so she's kind of got that going for her anyway but again we kind of need something kitschy for the plot so they go the whole beauty mark thing and then like you know that's like her big film um so um but she's just she's so kind and yeah we don't know a whole lot about her you know we don't really get much in the way backstory um but she's she's just so kind and you know happy with the success that comes to her she never seems to get a big head about it um you know she's always you know is she george cross paths you know on the studio lot she's excited to see him um you know she would rather spend time with him you know probably just talking with him about this that and the other thing uh instead of hanging around with the again the you know the kind of all-american boys and men that she's hanging out with she she's like toys you know <laughs> they're not anything to her they're just they're just uh you know people to have around um so when she sees her friend in get you know she see finds out her friend has gotten into trouble her first thought is to drop everything and and go to help him she doesn't you know she's not doing it out of pity although i'm sure there's part of george that feels you know feels like it's probably pity you can feel sorry for someone and not pity them those those two <laughs> do not have to go together uh, they can be mutually exclusive of each other um you can feel pity so pity someone and not feel sorry for them um but she just genuinely feels sorry for him as another human being and she just wants to be supportive you know she wants him to know that he has got some place to land when you know something unexpected happens he's got somebody he can turn to um and he's not going to be left high and dry and you know that's why she you know when he's released from the hospital she brings him to his house because where else is he gonna go you know his apartment burned down and apparently when apartments burn down they don't immediately like section it off and maybe start cleaning it out uh (laughs) so that people can just walk into it um and find their hidden gun that apparently the box did not melt in the middle of the fire uh you know so that he'll have someplace safe and comfortable to recuperate 
it, you know, she buys his stuff from the auction so that when he gets back on his feet, because I think she thinks he will eventually, that he can have the his stuff back. You know, the, the, the so the maybe not everything, but surely at least some of those things mean something to him. At the very least, that big ass painting of him and 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 Jack the dog, you know. <laughs> his dog um yeah i'm sure he'd probably like to have that back i would like to have pictures back of my pets um so that you know his stuff is just not lost to the wind to you know whoever bought it um how how his chauffeur ends up with her i was assuming that that clifton probably went to her uh he i'm sure he knew about her from yeah the 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 things like the that that the um the the household help well a lot of people um in media they tend to be treated as lesser than people you know they're the help uh, funnily enough, the movie The Help came out the same year as this movie. Uh, they are uh, sometimes the people that know the most about you more than your family <laughs> and your loved ones do uh, because they are silent, but their eyes and ears are always open. So my guess is Clifton knew about Peppy. So when he got fired he went off to her because and he's like well then you know that'll keep me at least one degree away from george instead of going off to just some random person and getting a new job uh keep the keep the keep the 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 you know six degrees of, of kevin bacon as little degrees as possible she sees in george something that george doesn't see in himself and when he reaches that low point of you know almost almost completing suicide it's her showing compassion but not you know, she yeah she obviously is concerned that he's reached that point but she's never angry with him She's not yelling at him like, you know, what are you crazy? You know, what the hell do you think you're doing? Don't you, you know, so a lot of those things that, you know, again, we see kind of portrayed in media. Um, yeah, she just shows him, I'm here. I care. You're not alone. And you've got a safe place. You know Clifton and and Jack the dog because the dog's name is Jack in the movie the the actual actor's dog actor's name is Elky. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, she's just you know she's not perfect, but she's she just tries you know she tries to do her best she tries to do you know what she thinks is the right thing to do uh for herself and for the, those that she cares about um and you know she does take risks but they 
pay off, you know, when she when she quote unquote blackmails the zipper. <laughs> that whole exchange was funny. It's so funny. <laughs> she's like, so like either she's like, I'm trying to blackmail you. Don't you get this? <laughs> so, um, she's just, she's very adorable. She's very adorable, and uh, you know, although we never get to hear her, um. Yeah, she's one of the she's we never get to hear her voice, so I have no idea what she actually sounds like in real life. Um but uh when it comes to the dancing, she seems quite talented. Uh both she and and Jean uh did all the dancing you see. They just they took very intensive training uh before filming so that they would able to are able to do the dance routines themselves. Um, so she seems to be quite talented um, as a as a as a dancer. Um, so you know, again, you know, it's kind of a the the happy ending, you know, of you know, like you could come back to Hollywood and be a star. He's like, ah, he's still like nobody wants to hear me, and she's like, that's not a problem. They can hear your feet, you know. Because <laughs> your feet are just as good as any other body part you got. So, um, she's just she's I, I just found her very adorable, you know, quite ador quite adorable, um, and I think a really good choice as kind of our leading lady uh for this version of hollywood and having kind of george's uh former leading lady be the stereotypical hollywood blonde beauty oh yeah all-american beauty um so which again i think is a, a somewhat an homage to uh even indirectly to um someone like uh you know kathy in in singing in the rain where you've got you know lena blonde curvy very you know very marilyn monroe-esque even though this takes place years before marilyn comes onto onto the scene but still um and then you get someone like kathy she's a brunette she's got these very expressive eyes uh you know she doesn't look like all the rest of the girls um so I don't again I don't know how intentional that was, but um I kind of like to think it is, and I'm kind of here for it. <laughs> well, I am too. And I'm sure, you know, I'm glad that because apparently at the time, I mean, I think they are still married. Uh Berenice Bejour was actually married to Hazanavichus. She was his wife at the time. I I believe they're still married. But uh, I think at the time, you know, that um, being you know, I'm glad that Hazanavichus had his wife play this role. And, you know, I think the fact that she's able to dance so well, heck, she was born in the land of the tango in Argentina. So I think that that certainly helps to Argentinian parents. And I think she moved, they moved to Paris or to France when she was very young. And so she has, you know, French-Argentinian uh, uh, citizenship and nationality, I suppose. But yeah, she was born in, uh, in Buenos Aires. So I guess that that certainly helps with the nifty footwork there, and uh, I and it's interesting. Uh, while we're do, we're talking about these characters, 
it for some reason it keeps making me think of T'Challa and Shuri in the first Black Panther film in the sense that T'Challa being more reluctant to change whereas Shuri is all about evolution and moving with the times and being more technological and that is that and granted the, the circumstances are very very different but there were moments where like yeah and as we were talking about yeah it kind of makes me think of uh, that dynamic we get in the first Black Panther movie that said I did mention Wings earlier, and Peppy's character did somewhat remind me also of Clara Bow and the whole it girl persona. As just like her name, you know, she starts off as being one of many of one of George's many fans, but through a chance encounter in George's brief mentorship, she gets her big break. And though initially there is a clear infatuation on Peppy's part when we have that coat scene in the dressing room. That does quickly dissipate as Peppy's star starts to wax higher and higher. And what I do love about her is that even though she becomes one of the most famous stars of her era, both as a silent actress and in the talkies, she never forgets where she came from or the man who gave her her first gig. And though he only realizes it later, we learn, of course, like Guy said, it was Peppy all along who was silently supporting George especially when we learned that she was the one who had bought all his stuff at auction in order for him to have money to survive. And add to this, though George's films get little to no attention and Pepe's shadow over them grows ever larger, she continues to support him, I think not because she's in love with him, but because she may still feel somewhat indebted to him. And the tap dance we get with both of them reunited on screen is just beautiful. I loved it. And just the chemistry between these two characters is so palpable. Berenice and, uh, and Jean very much have that, that great on-screen chemistry, which definitely doesn't hurt. So uh, let's round off our characters by looking at two others that are worthy of mention, other than, of course, uh, Uggy. But we do, of course, have uh, John Goodman as Al Zimmer, like Rachel mentioned, and James Cromwell, as Zam mentioned, as Clifton. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of Al Zimmer and Clifton? Um, yeah, Al Zimmer is, yeah, he's kind of the, um, yeah, the embodiment of kind of every studio executive of that, of that time, you know, take your pick, Louisville mayor, you know, whatever. Um, and, um, he is, you know, being the executive, you know, this this kind of person in charge, um, his, at the end of the day, his, his priority is make the studio money. <laughs> so, um, having, uh, you know, uh, in this era, having stars that you know you can turn to on a regular basis and more often than not <laughs> uh put them in something and it's going to make at least a decent return some sort of return you know some may be bigger than others but event you know it all it all adds up at the end of the 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 day or maybe the the fiscal year i don't know um and you know that's what they're that's what they're doing with 
peppy once she gets signed on to this studio you know that that montage that the zam mentioned where you see her name constantly moving up and up and up in the credits is because they just have her working and working and working and working and the stuff that she's in is being successful and therefore you know it's like hey you're winning for us so we're gonna you know you scratch our back i'll scratch yours you know you keep making us money we're gonna give you bigger roles um until something happens and then it's all your fault and nobody will want to claim you uh which also happened and sometimes the stars never recovered sometimes they do um just ask Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh it's not until but because of that, that ends up working at Peppy's favor when she needs to, you know, kind of get the studio to bow to her wins, <laughs> you know, her demands instead of you know, just doing film after film after film even though she she does seem to enjoy it um but uh you know when when she needs a favor because she has that pull she's able to convince Zimmer that no hire George I want him to be my co-star take it or leave it you know if you if you don't you know, essentially acquiesce to my demands, I'm walking out the door and there goes your cash cow. Um, and I mean, technically Zimmer doesn't give her exactly what she wants. You know, he doesn't hire George outright, but he does at least agree to let him see the script and, you know, probably do a, a screen test or something. And obviously that ends up working out. Um, but um you know it's he's just he's the he's the studio executive and he's just he's just trying to make the make the the money you know especially in this you know post you know stock market crash um you know a lot of people are hurting because of the the stock market crash and those fortunate enough to have at least a little bit of expendable income being able to go to the movies for you know a nickel or something like that for a few hours uh especially during something like the summertime where it's probably air conditioned when air conditioning <laughs> was not necessarily that common in people's homes um it was a way for them to escape the the awfulness that was the the out you know the the fallout from the the stock market crash um so um and it, it from what we see in the montage that yeah those are the the movies that that peppy is making uh seem to be you know happy <laughs> <laughs> relatively happy probably romantic probably rom-com you know it happened one night type films uh so um yeah you know, it's just uh 
you know, he's 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 fulfilling a role, you know, because we're, we're talking about Hollywood and we're talking about a studio. There's got to be a studio executive in this case. He's at least one that is decently competent. Um, unlike uh the the executive in, in Sing in the Rain, who's kind of a bumbling idiot. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> um uh, james cromwell yeah i've talked about clifton a few times already he's just he's just you know he he's as loyal as a human being could be you know if he wasn't a human he would be another dog you know he could he could be jack (laughs) he's just so darn loyal to george and you know, when George fires him, he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't want to go. You know, you can't, you can't fire me. You know, this is, you're not paying me anyway. <laughs> it's like, I'm just, I'm doing this because I want to. You're my friend. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're getting by together. You know, you, know, you, you can only talk to the dog so much because he can't talk back. Uh, so, um, you know, like I said, in, in my head, he's he went to Peppy to to be her driver, uh, knowing that uh, you know her um, her uh, you know kind of self uh, you know her bubble of social interaction sometimes includes George, so that keeps him connected um in a way but again that's just purely my speculation um but <laughs> uh it was it was nice to see it was nice to see james cromwell um you know he's again he's kind of one of those um character you know kind of one of those actors that you're just like i know you i just i probably don't you know that you know his face but you don't necessarily know his name um so um but uh you know he's uh you know, if you're if you're a certain age, you know him as the the farmer from Babe. So every time you see him, you're like, "That'll do, pig. That'll do." Uh, <laughs> so he also plays Prince Philip and the Queen, also starring Michael Sheen. Hey, there you go. Uh, I figured it out. Uh, so <laughs> I found that connection. Um, so uh but yeah he's just he he's one of those you know maybe not quite as um as uh in influential in in his employer's life as say you know morgan freeman and driving miss daisy but there's something to be said about a good chauffeur in modern media i don't know what it is but you get yourself a good one. You'll want to hang on to them for as long as possible instead of firing them because you're in a mood. 
indeed hang on to your chauffeurs folks because uh i definitely i definitely agree there's definitely something to be said about them indeed and uh, zan what did you make of these two characters i don't think clifton got fired because george is in a mood i think he got fired so he could go find a job that actually pays him more than never in a year you know he's like he's, he's still like, on a mood he's still in a mood i'll give you that he's in a mood but i think he's like you know what don't work for me anymore i suck i'm not gonna I have no hope of paying you anytime soon. Um, Clifton is a less crazy Max von Meyerling in this. I think he's as loyal and as interested in the well-being of his employer as Max was to um, Norma Desmond, except he didn't used to be a director and he didn't used to be married did George. <laughs> Those are big differences, which is probably why he's a little less crazy. Um, but he he knows a good person when he sees them. And I think he knows George is a good person. And George was a good employer. And that's why he stuck with him. I mean, he's got money somewhere. I mean, that guy has money somewhere that he's not worried about the fact that he doesn't get paid for a year, like an entire year. So and then when he and and I here's one thing that I don't quite know and I haven't decided yet in my own head canon does he go to Peppy or does Peppy find him it's like part of me thinks he goes to Peppy because he knows because that scene where they're having the moment in his dressing room where she's written thank you on the on the mirror and he comes in he's like oh I'm sorry what am I disturbing and he doesn't have a look of like Oh, this again. He just sort of has a look of like, oh, I might have actually run, you know, run into something real here. So part of me thinks he goes and finds Peppy to to work for it because, you know, first of all, he knows that if anybody's gonna want to know where George is, it's gonna be Peppy. And if anybody's gonna want to help him, it's going to be Peppy. And you know, that scene where he says, I, she's, you know, I, I know, I, I know people and she's a really good person and, you know, you should let her help you. You should let her do something for you. And again, you know, he needs, he needs someone to believe in him. Like I said, George needs someone to believe in him, but I think that someone believing in you that relies on you for income, it isn't going to work for him because he knows that there's no way that until he gets it could be another year or two before he's able to pay clifton <laughs> when he's back on his feet and as much as he wants clifton around you know he's not a bad employer i mean he doesn't you know mistreat clifton or make clifton do anything you know un unsavory or anything like that but he um he's like look i can't i can't rely on you when you have to rely on me when i'm unreliable i can't do this i can't have this so even though I think he has a friend in Clifton, you know, more than he does in Zimmer, because, you know, as they say in Hollywood, it's like, you know who your friends are when the chips are down and, and who's still calling you. And Clifton's still calling him. He's still there. He's still willing to live in this one, you know, one room apartment that doesn't even have a bedroom. It just has a Murphy bed as cool as Murphy beds are. <laughs> um, and willing to, you know, help prepare his lunch because he's got nothing else to do. They're not driving anywhere. They're not going anywhere. 
he doesn't have to go to the store and buy necklaces for his wife. You know, he, he doesn't have to run these. I, mean, I guess that's kind of an unsavory errand, but you know, just he knows that he was there. He saw what happened, that it, it wasn't anything. So, you know, but, uh, you know, so I think he is, I think he is a friend, but he can definitely be more of a friend once he's no longer an employee and he can say, dude, wake up, let her do this for you. You know, let her, you know, let her help you. You know, everybody, no one gets through this life without some sort of help, even if that's somebody who was nice to you and let you skip in the queue one day or something, just anything. Somebody gets help from someone else, even if it's just a smile, you know, and he knows that. And he knows, and he knows what he did for, he knows what George did for Peppy. And so he knows that she's willing to do that in return. And he saw how they looked at each other. He he knows what was going on there. You know, unlike Zimmer who, you know, the second talkies come and he's like, yeah, dude, nobody wants your movie. I'm not putting up money for it. We never hear from him again. <laughs> and he's such a perfect example. You know, like like you were saying, Rachel, he's definitely not an RF Simpson. You know, he's not a total bumble. I don't know, whatever. You guys just do what you have to do. Cosmo, you're my you're my uh music director okay i gotta go like he he knows what's going on he knows what's going on with the industry um and he's and he says like this is what the public wants and the public is always right and we all know that that is crap because the public is always made up of idiots and has no idea what's right and what is going to be the best thing in the long run but when it comes to capitalistic endeavors, what they say goes, what they say is right. You know, um, it, given enough exposure to new Coke, we probably could have traveled through time. I don't know. We'll never know because people didn't like how it tasted. And within, within a year, that stuff was gone <laughs> because that's what people say. And that's the same thing. Once we saw some talkies you know like i said one of the last remnants of silent film was charlie chaplin and that's because it was charlie chaplin i mean you had to be like that level for audiences to still tolerate your character without sound and as soon as sound hit it was like oh this is totally what i want now <laughs> and even if they saw like rachel was saying people who had terrible voices who just couldn't you know couldn't quite bring it to the screen it was like yeah i liked him back in the day but you know whatever happened to so-and-so he was good back then i mean people are fandom is very very fickle you know i think for we i know i sometimes tend to forget that because i'm one of those people that is like oh insert name of someone who was in twin peaks 35 years ago is going to be in this new project i'm going to watch it um whereas so many people I, I actually talked to somebody one time when i when i did a convention in dallas and they said you know well who are you going to go see and i said i want to see so and so and so and so and one of the people i wanted to see was richard dreyfus and they said who is that and i said <laughs> um i shouldn't have to explain this to you I didn't get out yeah get Leave. out <laughs> they said who is richard dreyfus and i said well you probably might you know probably 
one of the most famous things he's in is he's in Jaws. He's Hooper, the scientist in Jaws. Oh, Jaws is like my favorite movie. And it's like, okay, well, if that's like your favorite movie, but you don't know who the actors are, that's so telling about what, I'm sorry, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, mundane fandom is. Us as geeks, we will follow people. Rachel is going to follow Michael Sheen to the ends of the earth. I don't care what piece of crap he's in. Yep. Rachel, Rachel may very grudgingly watch Midnight watch in Paris. Watch Twilight. <laughs> no, Midnight in Paris. I was thinking Twilight. Twilight is, <laughs> I would rather watch Twilight than Woody. I'd rather watch all of the Twilight movies than one Woody Allen movie. Thank you very much. Um, the things we do. Things we do for love, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there, but then there are people who love certain movies, but they're just they they don't have this 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 obsessive encyclopedic thing that we have, and that was fandom back then. You know, it, like I said, no no reruns on television, no VCRs, no nothing. You saw a movie, you read the screen magazines, and that was what you had. And unless someone was right there, you're like, oh, I kind of remember him from from old movies probably you know in 1927 that meant like 1924 um i wonder whatever happened to them it's like well they're directing now and you know were people reading credit were people reading the one page of credits that happened at the end of a movie no that didn't all that didn't always happen and so you know zimmer's not wrong he's you know this is what what the audience wants is what the audience will pay for and we know that they want this talky thing and you have to deal with it and you can't i can't be with you on your sinking ship and you know he's not he's not wrong but he's definitely a perfect example of what have you done for me lately because even at the end when you see them in their in with their dance routine and he says and he's so excited he's clapping he's like that was perfect can we get another one it's not like welcome back george or i knew you had it in you george it's like oh good you showed me something that i can use in a talkie and so i i think he's you know he's a he's a he's a better example of you know what a producer is going to is going to do what a producer and a director is going to be doing at that time um you know he's less bumbling than rf simpson and he's less terrible than, you know, unfortunately, Harvey Weinstein, who unfortunately produced this this movie. Again, we're in the era of having to see the Weinstein Company at the beginning of so many of these. And it's so depressing, um, except for the fact that I know that Harvey's not getting any money from it right now. So. Um, but but yeah, he's not he's not the one that's going to you know, he believes in whoever can do what the audience wants right now. So that's the thing it's like once audiences stop wanting musicals he's got no space for busby berkeley either you know it doesn't matter how much of a master you are in your field as soon as the audience stops paying for it he doesn't care and you know he's the most realistic part of this you know aside from the whole what happened to silent film stars the most realistic part of this business as to what's going on with this is that you know the, the audience the public is it you know what the public wants the public gets and that's what they, what they pay for is what i'm going to give them and i don't care how much money you made me in the past i don't care if we seemed like friends before i don't care if you could call the shots before um i'm not following you under your sinking ship and you know fortunately 
he doesn't say something to George the way, the way he says to Pepe when he's, you know, you know, why the hell is she here? Get her off, get him offset, you know, or anything like that. He gives it a chance because, you know, we've had a couple of years of, you know, people sometimes having a comeback occasionally and seeing how audiences will pay for a comeback or, you know, want to see a, want to see a comeback story. So, you know, if he can get this guy to do what you need to do in a talkie, it could make him money again. So he's, you know, he's excited again, but he's definitely not, you know, he's friends with money. He's not going to be friends with you. And I think that's, that's very realistic when it comes to, you know, all of Hollywood, old Hollywood, new Hollywood, you know, even as a kid, when I saw RF Simpson, I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> that's not, that's not who does it. And I loved seeing both of these actors. Um, I, I hesitate to say who my favorite actor is because there are so many that do so many things and do so many things well, but you know, if you if you said gut reaction right now, I'll smack you in the face if you don't say something. I might actually say John Goodman. <clears throat> John Goodman has been in my top five for decades. You know, I absolutely adore him. Um, he's in my favorite movie as one of my favorite on-screen characters ever. Um, and this movie showed that he can also do silent pictures. He can do silent picture acting. Which just goes to show you that John Goodman can can do anything and be anything. And I think he's absolutely wonderful. And another one in my top, probably my top 10 is James Cromwell. Um, you know, it, it there that 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 mid to late 90s time that was just all James Cromwell all the time, where either it was either Babe or First Contact or um the RKO movie where he's uh he's um William Randolph Hearst. Um, he's he's just always. I mean, even you know, it, Archie Bunker's place. He's he's been good forever. He's always wonderful, and it's always wonderful to see both of them. And I and I loved seeing how they both they they both got this. They understood what they're. I think everyone in this movie understood what they needed to do to be in a silent movie. I think Penelope Ann Miller did really well also. And, you know, even though, <laughs> even though she kind of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, looked like Charles Foster Kane's first wife, I think they had her made up to look like she really looked like Susan Alexander Kane in this. So I thought just her, her role in her existence was sort of an homage to classic cinema where, you know, she looks like the second wife, but has the breakfast time passive aggressive, um, uh, you know, back and forth, uh, you know, enemy, enemies within your own, within your own bedroom thing as the first wife. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I don't think anybody missed their mic on this. Even, even Malcolm McDowell, who we see for 10 seconds. I was like, wow, what a waste of a Malcolm McDowell in this movie. But he probably was like, oh my God, get me into this project. I want to do this. <laughs> um everybody really understood what was needed of them and i think these two especially really brought that really you know especially because american audiences hadn't really seen our two main characters before but 
you know, by the time this came out, this was, this was, uh, what, 2011. Um, we'd been seeing these two actors for decades and the fact that we could see them, they were the, they were the, like I said, they were the things that made me realize that this was a modern movie that them and the film stock quality made me realize this was a modern movie and not a silent, but it was just because I knew who they were not based on their performances. And I think they did fantastic jobs. I am right there with you. And I will add, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, by this time, uh, Michelle Hazanavichus and Berenice Bejo had been married for five years and they're still married, folks. I'm very happy to hear that. And they have two wonderful children together, which is a beautiful thing. That said, when it comes to uh, these two folks, I totally agree. I think Zimmer very, very much represents that kind of old guard, if you will, of directors and possibly even, you know, to your point, Zan, modern ones as well, where he, he very much has his ear to the ground with, what is coming, keeping an eye out when it comes to trends and what have you. And he's not necessarily, unlike some directors, loyal to his actors in the sense that if they will bring in the goods and, the and you know, bring in the audiences, he'll hire them, he'll give them jobs. But if there's some new fresh face shows up and he knows that the, the, they will put butts in seats, he'll hire them. So he, 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 just like the fact that he gets the concept of talkies when he says, you know, the... The audience is always right. It's like, yeah, we have to embrace this trend because if not, we're kind of kind of be, you know, without a paddle, if you will. And he's trying, I think, at first to warn George about this because he kind of shows him the whole thing. And George kind of scoffs at it going, yeah, this is just a fad. It's not going to last. And you just see the look on Zimmer's face like, I don't think this is a fad. And you're probably making one of the biggest mistakes of your life when it comes to just the way he feels about it. So it's true. He is kind of more, more maybe looking out for number one than being one of those directors who is incredibly loyal to their actors, where it's like, I have to make money. I have to think about myself. And so I'm going to follow these trends as long as they benefit me and get me a, a, a paycheck, if you want to, and a big one at that. So I think there is very much that representation when it comes to Zimmer. Clearly, he's also, you know, a, an accomplished filmmaker and producer at that. And yeah, and, and you would almost think, I mean, he, I think it, he is inadvertently trying to help our, you know, our, our actors, but at the same time, they don't want to be helped or rather George is just so reluctant. He just doesn't want to do this. And, but it's John Goodman. So I absolutely loved what he did with this character. When it came to, um, to Clifton, he very much stands out as a true friend and ally to George. And, and like you guys said, he remains loyal to him, even during the latter's career decline, demonstrating, I think very much that value of genuine friendship in terms of adversity, in times of adversity, rather. And unlike uh, Zimmer, I think Clifton, Clifton also, I mean, well, rather like Zimmer, Clifton recognizes the inevitability of change and the need to adapt. And he is also urging George to consider the potential benefits of talking pictures and tries to encourage him to embrace the new technology, but once again, to no avail. So there are a lot of people kind of telling George, you kind of have to move the times, buddy, and he's just so... It's probably is a mixture, like you were saying, Zan, of fear, reluctance, ego. There's a whole, there's a lot uh, playing when it comes to, to why George does not want to move with the times. But yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed Clifton as well because of how loyal he was. And I do agree. I think, I think the your theory is that Clifton went to um, went to Pepe, not the other way around, because maybe he knew of their closeness and what have you, and so he sought her out. And that's why we got what we got. But yeah, two fantastic actors and bringing, really bringing uh, excellent performances. 
So let's get to how our movie ended. Speaking of persuasion, Peppy persuades, of course, Zimmer to let to let her and George make a musical together. And now the audience hears sound for the second time as the film starts rolling for a dance scene with Peppy and George and their tap dancing can be heard. Once the choreography is complete, the two dancers are heard panting, which I thought was kind of fun. The director of the musical calls out audibly cut, to which as Zimmer adds, perfect, beautiful, could give me just one more. And we get George in his only audible line replying with pleasure, revealing, of course, a French accent. The camera then pulls back to the sounds of the film crew as they prepare to shoot another take. And that is our ending. So, Zan, what did you make of how the artist came to a close? I loved the ending because this is exactly what happened with film, is that once we had talkies, we had singing and dancing movies. We had musicals. Like I said, we had Fred Astaire. We had Busby Berkeley. And the fact that they are now making what kind of looks like a Fred Astaire or, and or Busby Berkeley picture, they sort of alluded to the Busby Berkeley with the camera coming up a little bit, but they didn't even try because it was just the two of them. So it wasn't going to be a full on Busby Berkeley experience. Um, but the fact that, you know, that, that she's, you know, that, that they're, that they're hugging each other and she says, I have an idea. And then you see them dancing and you're like, of course, this is of course going to work. And, you know, after they they have this moment and you know that the one piece of film he saved from the fire was the two of them dancing. That now what they're going to do is make a movie where they're dancing together. And we are reminded that this guy is a star. He is an artist. He is a star. He can do whatever is needed to be done to make to make a good to make a good picture. And even even the people that were his friends that then told him, oh, you're washed up in this town. They're like, perfect. That was perfect with, you know, almost like you could almost see Tex Avery-esque dollar signs in John Goodman's eyes when he saw the two of them dancing together, that this was going to make them money. This was going to be a hit. And then, you know, they, like you said, they stopped dancing and they have that moment where they're just <laughs> like, they're, they're, they're panting because they've been dancing so hard. And like I said, they really were dancing hard. That was, this was something that I learned in college when I was taking film classes, um, really watch dance sequences and see how long they're actually dancing. If they dance over a minute, it, it's, it's long because a lot of times it's like 15 seconds, boom. 45 seconds boom they're 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 changing the angle and like i said fred astaire was famous for not doing that that you know he wanted a dance sequence that without cuts that was going to look like you were watching something on broadway and that's not easy it's it, it's it's not easy it it wears you out you sweat your makeup off you start panting <laughs> everything and i and i love that that's what we first hear from them because it's obviously a dancing scene and there's going to be music over it and they're going to cut before they start panting too badly. But, but that's, that's what we're hearing is we're hearing their effort. We're, you're hearing their energy and you know, you can tell that there is something there between the two of them and we don't see it. And I, and I love the fact that, you know, Chris, Chris always gives me a hard time for, for, you know, not liking love stories. And I like love stories. I don't like cliches. Um, you know, like I, I, I don't, you know, because I, I was worried when I was watching this, like, oh my God, she's leaving the film set. Is she going to be, is this going to be another story of, 
a woman throwing away her opportunity to make sure that a man has what he needs. Like, are we going to go down that road again? Um, you know, is this going to be another, you know, what's your name? I'm Mrs. Norman Maine, all of that bullshit that we all know that I can't handle. Um, but we didn't have that. We had this real, this very real friendship, deep love between the two of them, you know, that they just want to, they just want to be there with each other. And the best way they can do that is for them to be on the same footing. And so, you know, he can't, she can't be with him when he's a star and he can't be with her when she's a star. But if they're both stars, they can do this. They can be with each other. They can do this for each other. And then of course, at the end, when he says, can you give it to me one more time? And you get that with pleasure. And you're like, yes, you're French. They're going to love you in the thirties. Like you you are going back up to the top, my friend, and you're not going anywhere until the fifties. <laughs> you are going to have a nice long career of, <laughs> of musicals where you sound like Chevalier or Montan or somebody like that. <laughs> Who I think wasn't Eve Montan one of the first people to do a transatlantic uh, radio radio broadcast? I don't remember. That's just I think it I was feel. Eve Montan. Yes, yeah, I think it was Eve Montan. So, you know, it's people are just going to love the French more and more and more as the, as the musicals go on. And um, so you're like, you hear his voice and you know that his voice, it isn't ridiculous. It doesn't have a bad, um, you know, it, it doesn't have a, you know, I... I understand that I'm also in the Midwest, but it doesn't have a bad Midwestern accent that uh, um, somebody like a John Gilbert had, you know, kind of a nasal bad Midwestern accent that Louis B. Mayer tried to get him to accentuate because he wanted him out basically. But um, again, we have this sort of Garbo Gilbert situation where she's like, I'm not doing this unless you bring him in, but he's good. That's as much as I love John Gilbert, that voice isn't going anywhere in talkies you know he's and he's not going to be able to sing this guy you can tell he's going to be able to sing he's going to be able to talk he's going to be able to sound good he's going to people are going to want to hear him as much as he would he thought people aren't going to want to hear me people are going to want to hear him because um again we know the stereotype of of what uh you know an exotic foreign accent is going to do do for somebody and like rachel was saying you know you you have you know, her exotic Argentinian Argentinian facial features and his exotic French accent. You're, this this team is going to go far. This is this is going to be, you know, this is going to be the next Astaire and Rogers. This is going to be the next Nick and Nora. I don't know who they're going to be, but they're going to be a team that we're going to remember for a long time. And um, it's not a charity case either. It's not this conciliatory co-director thing that they did sometimes and it's not a um it's not getting you know getting him to dance when he can't actually dance because he can you know he's you know he's good at this you can tell that they're that they are they are good and they are good together and they are good on the same level and so this is going to be this is going to be the start of something big for the two of them and i and i, I love that ah very well said and rachel what did you make of our ending yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's a happy ending. You know, the you know, George is is back in front of the camera where you know, he's seemingly the most comfortable and feels mo more most himself. You know, he's got 
this this good friend who's helping him get back on his feet. Yeah, he's getting to try-ish something new, but something that's still somewhat familiar to him. So um, that's a good way to, you know, kind of ease him into this new era in Hollywood. Um, and the dance number, it just looks fun. Uh, you know, <laughs> they definitely are uh, putting in the effort. Those are not, uh, you know, stand-ins. Those are those are our two leads who took the time to learn the choreography and how to and how to dance like that, so that they could do that bit for real. Um, and I'm I'm sure the breathing is is genuine. It's not something they needed to act. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I love that the. That that's you know only the second time that we get sound it's like the first time we get the sound is it is dream which um you know first you're hearing like you know his his glass set on the the counter and the ladies outside that are laughing and uh, i just had to laugh at the feather yes yeah, so you see it slowly falling down the ground hits the ground it's like yeah <laughs> like okay um but this time it's it's you know much more believable because it's actual real life it's not a dream um i was just like you know his voice can't be that bad you know <laughs> uh so when you know we do I finally do hear him speak it's like well, what the hell is his problem why did he think nobody wanted to hear him talk like that's a very nice sounding voice um you know women are gonna swoon <laughs> they were already but now they're gonna be swooning you know more in the movie theater when they hear him speak it's just a shame that 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 uh jack is not in that dance number somewhere <laughs> but i think i do find it interesting that we hear george we hear al we hear zimmer but we never we never hear Peppy speak. Yeah. All we ever do is hear her breathe. This is true. This is true. Um, I, I agree with you both. I mean, the ending is it, it's a beautiful ending. And the moment where we finally hear George's voice might be to symbolize his acceptance of change and his ability to embrace new forms of storytelling, even while paying homage to the past. And I, I found it almost like it served a metaphor for the evolution of cinema itself. I mean, it reflects the industry's transformation, just like the whole movie from the silent era to the advent of sound, and very much mirroring the challenges faced by the artists who resisted this change and those who successfully adapted to it. Added to that, I, the, I think the ending speaks also to the broader theme of nostalgia, as well as George navigates the tensions between holding onto the past and embracing the future, and overall, it's a beautifully executed conclusion that ties together the film's themes of change and of nostalgia and, of that, and adaptation and very much provides a satisfying resolution for the characters while also making a statement about the enduring power of storytelling in, in the face of technological advancements. Maybe our next evolution, hopefully not, will be AI in film, but hopefully not, but we shall see. But yeah, it was it was a beautiful ending, and uh, and I, I was smiling all the way through it by by the time the credits rolled. So 
Let's get to if we were the Academy segments. This film, of course, won Best Picture during the 84th Academy Awards, held at the Hollywood and Highland Center in Los Angeles on February the 26th of 2012. Your host for the night returning was Billy Crystal, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Tom Cruise. This film was running up against eight other movies, The Descendants, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Help, as Rachel mentioned, Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and Warhorse. So, Rachel, do you think that the right movie won this year? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, this this movie was just so just charming. Um, uh, yeah, and of course, you know, I'm a sucker for musicals although this is not really a musical but because it's silent 99 percent of the film we're relying on the score quite a bit to help us uh you know to help move things along and to help us you know set the mood to feel what we're supposed to be feeling uh for for certain scenes uh so um you know and yeah, anything referring to this kind of era of Hollywood, again, you know, singing in the rain esque. Um, you know, this just this just screams a Rachel type movie. So, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the I mean, honestly, this year was not like, oh my god, there's so many good movies. I mean, there's several um that i have seen i think it's interesting hugo got nominated for best picture um but um yeah just uh i mean uh you know i can't really speak for a lot of the other best picture nominees i i know the help when it came out, people were like, ah, you know, this is so good. It's still a white savior movie, unfortunately. So I know, you know, it's, it's, an, I mean, it's a great performance from Octavia Spencer. Um, you know, she absolutely, uh, you know, deserved that, the supporting actress award. Um, you know, she's just, yeah, she's a, a great actress. Um, but the help at the end of the day, it, it's still a white savior movie. So that's, <laughs> it, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, you've got a Woody Allen movie, which is just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're just kind of like, eh. even um, though Michael Sheen is in it. Yeah, I know, but it's still a Woody Allen movie. Uh, some things are deal breakers. <laughs> yes. Um, no. Um, yeah. Of course, you got you got Meryl Streep winning her what uh, you know Oscar number whatever playing Margaret Thatcher. You know. <laughs> um, yeah, the fact that Woody Allen won for best original screenplay. Uh, <laughs> um. Honestly, I think best original screenplay probably should have got a bridesmaid. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it's just—I mean, this year it was just you know, 
Like my probably my favorite movie of the year is the Muppets, but it's still not the best Muppet film of the the Muppets, you know, repert- repertoire. So um I am glad that Man or Muppet did win Best Original Song though. So <laughs> so yeah definitely the right one one in in this case i have no arguments in 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 this place in this case good stuff and uh, zan do you think the right movie won i do for me this year the two major contenders were this and hugo with um in extremely loud and incredibly close being a, a a a close you know second string runner basically um there tree of life interesting storytelling um descendants a, a really lovely movie and again interesting storytelling of the two stories and how they had to come together um and an interesting commentary on on who owns hawaii you know that and that's a that's there there's a lot to think about when you when you watch the descendants with that extremely loud incredibly close is like kind of a kind of like an interesting family mystery with 9/11 as its backdrop. So it's using 9/11 as the backdrop to tell a story rather than trying to tell another 9/11 story. Not that we can't hear enough of those, but it's doing it a little bit differently. Um as wonderful as the help is, Rachel's right. When at the end of the day this this is a movie that when we get to the end of it is a book written by one of the white wives. So as great as everyone is in this movie, you know, ah, this is, this is, this is a tough one. I mean, Octavia did win Octavia Spencer won for best supporting actress and Viola Davis was up for best actress um, against. And Meryl Streep won. I feel like everybody else was better than her this year. Um, not that she's bad it's not like she needs another one there's there's that it's not like she needs another one um she's kind of doing a bit of an imitation you know so is i guess so is michelle williams a little bit but i think less because it is a side of Marilyn that we don't see in film whereas margaret thatcher was so documented as being you know such a resounding See you next Tuesday. Um, frankly, given the choice between the two of them, I would probably pick Julian uh, Anderson when it comes to performances as Margaret Thatcher. Um, Viola Davis is so good, but as great as Viola is, you know, I probably might have picked Rooney Mara for that one. Um, and it the, the best supporting is a weird one because as great as Bernice Bejo is in this movie. It's like I want to give it to Melissa McCarthy because we have a, another standout comedic role, very much like Kevin Klein's role in Fish Called Wanda. 
and we don't see Oscars go to comedy very much. But Octavia Disp- Octavia Spencer deserves all the Oscars, frankly. Um, I I you know her winning an Oscar for a a um, Shape of Water would have been fine with me. That's I mean she she gets an Oscar when she does anything. She's 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 wonderful. Um, I think we should be looking at Octavia Spencer the way we look at Meryl Streep. Like, oh, Octavia's in a movie, Oscar nom, you know, and that's kind of how that is. Um, Moneyball, great movie that I can't watch. Um, I can, I have a, a problem with looking at or even hearing the threat of saliva. Um, you know, I can watch blood and gore and vomit and everything, but as soon as somebody spits, I can't handle it. And these baseball guys chew tobacco through this whole movie. And I, I could not get through more than like a half an hour of it, um, with the sound on. Um, and again, war, war horse, exactly what you would expect from a Steven Spielberg, you know, wartime feel good, epic type of thing. Um, but it's very, I feel it, it's a, it's a good movie. It's well done. It's an interesting part of war that we don't think about, but do we need to have that as an Oscar movie? I don't necessarily think so. And Midnight in Paris can suck it. It's Woody Allen. Um, we're getting into the point where people should be knowing better than to be agreeing to work on Woody Allen projects. Um, you know, I'm disappointed in the people who starred in this movie. A lot of them have apologized for it. A lot of them have donated their their salary from it. Um, not a lot, but you know, a few people have said that they just they they're they're they regret the experience. Um, but Hugo and the artist are true love letters to cinema. Um, Hugo is an incredible, incredible movie about not just the early days of cinema, but the early days of French cinema. Um, not what we're not what we're used to, and how incredibly influential Georges Méliès was, even if everyone forgot about him during the war. Um, so I think these two were were both real contenders. However, I feel like you know, all things being equal, and I do sort of love these movies equally. All things being equal, the artist just edges it out with just being a little more special with the with the way the movie was done um with the you know and and i and i do you know i i agree with this being winning for director um i feel like when we get down to these technical things where it's either you know of course sound editing and sound mixing is going to go to hugo (laughs) (laughs) um but when we get to art direction and cinematography those both go to hugo but they could have very easily gone to the artist in my opinion um especially the art direction and the cinematography well i said both but you know the um artist and hugo are also both up for costume design artist gets costume design um they're both up for editing but that goes to girl with a dragon tattoo i might give the artist some editing as well um but i i definitely think with cinematography just with the way some of these shots are done um like I said, some of those reflection shots and just how, and, and the shot of them when they're going up and down the stairs in the Bradbury, where it's like, he's going down while she's going up. It's like, you know, camera that in your head a little bit more if you want to. Um, but with the art direction, like I said, this looks like, this looked like this movie came right out of 1929. Um, I mean, it was impressive as how well they did that. Um, you know, Hugo got visual effects, which 
obviously it should have it had a freaking robot that could draw something um you know it had some really wonderful things i'm actually kind of surprised we don't see a supporting actor nod for um sasha baron cohen in this one again or an actor nod for ben kingsley again ben kingsley was really fantastic in this in this movie um Jean Dujardin, absolutely. He has so much to do. As good as the rest of these actors are, he has so much to do in this movie. Um, supporting actor, I mean, who who am I to say Christopher Plummer doesn't deserve an act? Doesn't doesn't deserve an Oscar? I would never say that. Um, Max von Sydow deserves them too. Um, and I'm with Rachel, 100%. Bridesmaids, I think, should have taken original screenplay. The artist was up for it. Um, but it, you know, Woody Allen stupidly won, which is, I don't, I don't get, but whatever. It's like, we get in the habit of nominating Woody Allen and giving him Oscars and we just can't get out of it. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, but again, Bridesmaids was a very, uh, an excellent comedic screenplay. And the fact that it get that, that it gets recognized by the Academy is fantastic because the Academy doesn't like comedies. Um, and again, as much as I love the artist, it's a screenplay based on a lot of things we've already heard. It's a screenplay based on stories we know. So when it comes to original screenplay, I definitely think Bridesmaids edges it out. And like I said, The Descendants, you know, interesting, you know, these are all, you know, these are all good things. Descendants, interesting book, interesting points, great storytelling. I would have given this to, uh, to Hugo again, you know, to take a, to take an illustrated young adult book and make a gorgeous movie about the about one of the most influential visionaries of early cinema is incredibly impressive so yeah i think you know like i said these are these are my two but i think the artist just edges it out by being like i said at this point in cinema you have to do something special and i think it really does something incredibly special here and again, I love that we finally get another silent movie that we can talk about. You know, we're, this is not a silent movie because of the necessity for silent pictures, because we don't have sound. But this is a silent movie done in the way a silent movie is done. You know, as, as, you know, as much as I love Mel Brooks, you know, silent, silent movie was a movie that he just put, put, put dialogue cards in. It wasn't, it wasn't done the way a silent movie was done. And this movie was, was a return to that type of art form, that type of cinema and filmmaking. And it was done so perfectly and so seamlessly that I think that's what edges it out for me is that it's something, it's something so different, but only because we haven't seen it in 80 years. <laughs> and that's the most, that's the most interesting thing. And it, re and again, like I said before, it reminds us that silent silent filmmaking is not just what we had until we could get sound it is a it is a viable art form it is a different way of making movies but it is a valid way of making movies and um you know i i've i've always wished that we could talk more silent movies on this podcast but we can't we've gotten the two <laughs> and i'm glad we got the two so i do i think this one definitely was the right choice 
well, hey, maybe once again, once we're all caught up, that could be an idea of maybe looking at some other silent movies. Who knows? Um, I, I will say that, yes, The Descendants is definitely one of Alexander Payne's better, if not best films to date. I was thoroughly like you, Zan. I was thoroughly invested in the story. And I will say that George Clooney very much shone in this one, together with uh, with Shaleen Woodley. Extremely loud and incredibly close was, I think, one of the first times that the trauma and loss felt from 9-11 is actually shown in a movie. And though Tom Hanks is barely in this film, he definitely looms large. But I will especially shout out young Thomas Horn and the wonderful, of course, Max von Sydow. This movie very much, I think, took me into the anxiety of loss and how a nine-year-old attempts to make a huge and loud world small and manageable I very much enjoyed the help on multiple levels, from the acting to the direction to the cinematography. And yes, though it is, a, it can be seen as a white savior complex movie. I loved how certain obnoxious racist people get their just desserts. No pun intended. And I had also the same reaction with the Tree of Life as Billy Crystal did. As I get, it's an impressionist film, and as beautiful and poetic as it is, I was very much saying to myself explain malik explain and get to the point so i was very much in billy's in billy's court there hugo i agree it's a very sweet story and incredibly unscorsese like compared to what we know from marty but hey it shows he can tell a story that does not entail gangsters hardcore violence or other such things and it definitely succeeds I am not the biggest baseball fan nor even knew anything about the oakland a's but I do think that Moneyball accomplished what it set out to do. Now, I know this will be incredibly controversial and one has to separate the artist from the art, but I do think a case could be made for Midnight in Paris. And yes, it hurts me greatly to praise Woody Allen more than you know, but this, was, this is actually my favorite movie of his. And though we know romantic fantasy comedies don't win Oscars, a case could be made for it. All in all, though, I am very happy that the artist won. And I think the fact that it strummed Hollywood's strings definitely did not hurt. But it definitely does. It, 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 I can see why it won. And I'm totally fine with it. And I think to a certain extent, yeah, it does take elements present in some of the other nominated films and it elevates them, bringing us this mixture that works so, so well. So I'm totally cool with, uh, with the artist winning this year. So uh, let's then get to ratings. Zan, what do you give the artist out of 10? Uh, this one, this gets a nine out of 10 for me, mostly losing a point because, um, we, we don't get Uggy the dog at the very end. <laughs> and, you know, like I said, it, it does have, you know, it is, it is a story I've heard before, but it's just so incredibly well done. I just, I absolutely love it. It, it gets, it gets a nine out of 10 for me. Great stuff. Rachel, what, what do you give it? I am giving this one a eight and a half one because I really would have liked more dog. Uh, and I also would have liked to hear what Peppy sounded like. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm also going to give this an eight and a half out of ten myself as I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, uh, more Uggy the dog, please. And uh, but yeah, other than that, I think it did everything it had to do. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. So it's an eight and a half out of ten for me. So uh, let's get to gold standard fan mail. We have some feedback from a couple of our lovely listeners this week and also supporters, of course, starting with Shalane. Rachel, I believe you have that one. 
I do. Forgive me for trying to read this the way that formatting came through into my email. So, all right. She says, hello, friends. The only movies I've seen Jeffrey Rush are in Pirates, Fighting Nemo, and Shakespeare Love. The movies I've seen Colin Firth are Pride of Prejudice, miniseries, Mamma Mia, Shakespeare Love, What a Girl Wants, and Mary Poppins Returns. My favorite movies of 2010 are Tangled, Toy Story 3, How to Train Your Dragon, You Again, Harry Potter, The Deathly Hallows Part 1, and Alice in Wonderland. Fun fact, Helena Bottom Carter was in three movies that year. Alice in Wonderland, The King's Speech, and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Plus, she played Queen Elizabeth in this film, and she was in The Crown. Yes, she gets around. Now, the only movies I've seen Helena Bottom Carter are in Alice in Wonderland, Harry Potter, Cinderella, Ocean's 8, Sweeney Todd, The Corpse Bride, and Les Mis. Yeah, mostly Tim Burton films. There is a reason for that. <laughs> She was kind of connected to him in multiple ways. <laughs> Nepotism. Uh, also, I think the winner of 2010 which would have been Black Swan. I still need to see that movie. Plus, I'm so glad the winner wasn't True Grit because I'm not a fan of Western films. No offense, Nick. But I do love films like Annie Get Your Gun in Oklahoma. That's because those are musical Westerns. Uh <laughs> Another film that should have been nominated for Best Picture that I still need to see is Burlesque with Cher and Christina Aguilera. It is also weird that Inception was nominated, even though it's a confusing movie. Maybe it's because it's a Christopher Nolan film. Eh, could be. My goat and donkey for the 2010s are Goat, Chicago, Donkey, Slumdog, Billionaire. Now, time for your latest Patreon episode. I love the Karate Kid franchise. I've seen all the movies in Cobra Kai. I also watched the remake with Jackie Chan and Will Smith's son, and I didn't like it. From what I understand, a lot of people didn't like it. This is because we have a Justin Bieber song, and I don't like Justin Bieber. Well, it could be that, too. That's why I prefer the OG Karate Kid, because back in the 80s, there wasn't Justin Bieber, and it got me to do karate. Growing up, I was just like Daniel, being bullied a lot into karate, and I never quit karate because I wanted a black belt and to stand up to my bullies, and I did. And she's she's telling the truth. She does have a black belt. That is very impressive. Also, if you don't know, there's going to be a sequel to Cobra Kai. Also, Ralph Macchio is coming to Salt Lake Comic Con, and there have been a couple of actors from Cobra Kai that have come to Salt Lake Comic Con. Plus, Ralph Macchio wrote a book, and I'm going to read it soon. Plus, Pat Morita is the emperor in the animated version of Mulan. Elizabeth Shue is the 80s girl. She is the second and third Back to the Future and Adventure Babysitting. Also, I always think Star Wars The Last Jedi was a, was a space karate kid. <laughs> Last thing, Karate Kid at Ghostbusters got the same treatment. Popular 80s movies, TV series, and remakes and sequels to the OG. It's because Hollywood likes to repeat themselves and milk cash cows for as long as possible. Exactly. Welcome to capitalism, indeed. Well, that's a, that was a great, great email from Shalane. And we also have some feedback all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, from Mr. Frank Mendoza. Zan, Mendoza! Mendoza! I, I have to say, I, I very much appreciate you giving me the feedback from Mendoza! <laughs> so i was happy that i, I was happy to see that i got that one so frank writes i took my film class at the time on a field trip to see the artist as an independent at, at an independent movie theater as they walked out most were raving about it i think it's the kind of movie that is best appreciated on the big screen 
not because it's a big spectacle, but because you need to immerse yourself in its modesty and intimacy in order to get lost in the story. I've used the DVD a couple of times in the years since, but it had it has had nowhere it has had nowhere near the impact that it did that semester. It parallels to singing in the rain. It's parallels to singing in the rain are self-evident, as of the hints to Sunset Boulevard sprinkled throughout as well. As a film, it was an entertaining throwback to the start of the golden age. And I agree about seeing this in the theater. And I I'm glad for that you took your students to see it at an independent theater because the independent theaters are usually the smaller, more um, bare bones theaters that would have been closer to what we were seeing as a neighborhood theater during the silent film era. Um, the silent film era that, you know, they, we have a um, theater here in downtown Columbus that was a movie theater you know, during the silent film era, very plush. It was a, um, it was a uh, Lowe's, I believe when it first started and it's very plush, but you know, no, uh, no drinks, no, no uh, hot dogs or pizza, no recliners, none of that kind of thing, which, you know, as much as I love that, I think, I think seeing a silent film in a smaller theater that was designed for a smaller screen would actually be very cool with this because this is definitely one of those and this is the thing about a silent movie too you cannot do something else while you're watching this movie you uh -uh. have to be immersed in it you have to be watching it because if there is dialogue you're going to miss it um you you know this is you have to watch this movie to see how it's going because again like i said the director tried to have as little dialogue as possible and if you're not watching it, you're missing a lot of the story. And to be immersed in it, I can I can totally see that. If you are in a position um, to be able to watch it at home, you know, I definitely recommend put your phone away, turn the lights off. You know, you don't if if you have small children that are going to interrupt you, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, or if you are. You know, make sure nobody's, you know, you know, make sure the dishes are done so the dishwasher's not humming in the background or anything like that, that you just, you just have the experience of it because that's what it was. It was, it was, you know, the movie and all of those wonderful people out there in the dark. And that was the, that's how these types of movies were intended to be seen because they had no other concept of how else they would have been seen at the time. Like I said, there wasn't even television. So you know, nobody expected these to be watched in a living room, but definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. You still, you still, you still get a lot out of it, but I, I definitely think independent theater is probably the best way to see this one. I agree completely. I, it's interesting I'm, that, that uh, at least from my experience, the independent theaters are where they show the non like major studio films which i mean it's at least as far as the dvd it's it's sony and it's it's a weinstein film the weinstein company film so that's fairly mainstream so it's interesting that it was shown in a independent theater but i mean just because of the nature of the film the literal film itself and not the company it come 
came from? Most likely. I mean, that's kind of the way I, I try to always view the movies that I watch in general. So all the lights are off, the blinds are down. I put in, I actually use my headphones and just sort of just watch it like that. And it's a kind of, to kind of rekindle, if you will, the, the movie going experience. And, uh, and yeah, and, and I agree with you there, Zan, about the phones. It's true. You can't play with phones. And I get so aggravated when I see people playing with their phone, with their phones while watching a movie. I know I shouldn't, but I'm kind of like, I really just going to reach over, grab their phone, just throw it across the, the room. Cause like, uh, watch the bloody movie. But anyways, that, that's my problem. I respect that. So. <laughs> Of course, should you folks wish to be like Shalane and Frank and share your thoughts on the movies we discuss here and more, you can do so by shooting us an email. Then that email is goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Once again, goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, aka X, uh, where we can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing you guys, and we appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you'd like to hear us discuss your favorite Oscar nominee or a film that you feel deserve to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can join our wonderful family of patrons on Patreon and check out the great reviews we have done there. And of course, you'll get to uh, lock unlock uh, reviews of such movies as, of course, The Sound of Metal, Singing in the Rain, Star Wars, the OG Star Wars trilogy, Godfather 3, and much more. And added to that, we have also added some... Uh, mini so some uh, some audio reviews if you will or audio essays as i like to call them i've kind of put up a couple of uh, the early mcu movies as i'm doing a rewatch of those in chronological order and i recently put up a comparison piece between lenny lenny riffenstahl and dw griffith to questionable people but who definitely contributed a lot to cinema so that that's what you can get on our patron and a patreon patreon page and to join our golden army head on over to patreon.com slash oscars and a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support and rachel when you're not here in the, the gold standard theater where can folks find you on the interwebs you can find me with the five ish fangirls podcast or a weekly pop culture and entertainment podcast where we talk about all sorts of geeky and nerdy things from the female perspective because fangirls are real fans too and we can found pretty much wherever you ever find podcasts and at the five-ish fangirls.com where you can connect with all our various social media accounts my personal ones as well along with information about our non-profit fangirls give Back. And if you're one of our Patreon supporters, then you got a very special present over the last few days. <laughs> oh, uh, well, that's that's definitely something, folks. So you definitely know know what to do. And uh, Zan, where can folks find you? You can find me and our friend Charles Skaggs on Drunk Cinema, where we discuss our favorite movies over our favorite adult beverages and record that for posterity and your entertainment. Um, we're going to be switching up the schedule here a little bit um, because of uh, travel issues. Um, so, you know, just keep, keep an eye on our social media for, you know, when we're actually going to be recording. Um, and then if you want to find me speaking of social media, if you want to find me on social media, your best bets would be, Instagram, TikTok, or Threads, where my username is Udenx19. 
fabulous stuff indeed. And when it comes to myself, folks, you can find me hosting the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. And if you about that, you can visit our website, which is whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, if you're fans of those superhero movies, you can find myself, Keith Bliss, and assorted guest co-hosts on Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast. We review all superhero movies under the sun. We recently recorded our review of um, Death Note, and next week we'll be taking on the animated movie, which will kind of be a double feature, Hulk versus. And uh, last but certainly not least, myself and Charles Skaggs can be found on the Fandom Zone, where we review all sorts of superhero TV shows. We're currently on hiatus as we wait for Loki Season 2 to drop in a couple of months in October. So that'll be fun. In the meantime, you can check out our back catalogue there of such things as WandaVision, Superman and Lois, uh, the recent Secret Invasion, and much more besides. So that is the Fandom Zone. And speakings to come on this show, and next time we will be discussing the 2012 Ben Affleck film, Argo. So, uh, Rachel and Zan, anything else you guys would like to add on our upcoming movie or anything else before we sign off? Be nice to my husband. This will be his first time guesting with us. (laughs) Rachel, have you seen this one? No. Oh, okay. Why would I? So, I know it's I know it's not the type of movie I would I would go for. So no, I mean, no offense, no offense to Ben Affleck, but you know, uh, <laughs> other than a very basic idea of what the movie is about, and it's it's Ben Affleck, I I know nothing. So it has a secret comic book history too, which we'll talk more about next time. Yay! Well, I'm definitely <laughs> looking forward to that. Um, I have seen this movie. I have thoughts on it, um, but to, I'll, I'll keep those for when we return to discuss this film. Definitely looking forward to uh, to your husband Chris making his debut here at the Gold Standard Theatre, indeed, Zan. So uh, that said, folks, thanks as always for this show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Argo. Until then, thank you for the privilege of your time. Keep that popcorn hot. Ciao, my people.